passage in Isaiah 54. 17th verse. It's a very familiar passage and I, my emphasis is on the last part. The part that is less familiar. Just this, uh, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that is raised up against you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the part. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is from me, declares the Lord. Some translations render that their vindication is from me. But it's the same concept. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Does that make you think of anything that Jesus said? Snakes and poison. Say it again. Snakes and poison. Yes. You shall tread on serpents. And if any poisonous thing bites you, it will not harm you. I give you power over what? Most of the works of the evil one, right? All the works of the evil one. So the time that Isaiah was speaking of was the time that Jesus fulfilled. A time when God's power came within availability, came within reach of people. We're all familiar of, with the time when he gave them this authority. He sent out 72 disciples, remember? He said, I give you power over every unclean spirit, over every sickness. Amen. Go and preach the gospel. And they went out and what happened? God moved through those 72 men. And wherever they went, the power of God that had been at work in the singular man of Jesus suddenly began to spill over and work through 72 others. And when Jesus saw this, we're told that he rejoiced greatly. It's the same word used in John 4 where it says, Whoever drinks of this water, it will become in him a fountain of living water welling up or springing up to eternal life. So the, the, the concept of, of the rejoicing here, Brother Howard reminded us some years ago, it's this welling up of joy. It's not just this passive sort of, hey, you know, that's neat. It's this eruption of joy. Like water under pressure out of dry ground. And it says, Jesus rejoiced greatly. And he said something. What did he say? He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What was he seeing? How do we connect the fall of Satan so fast it looks like grease lightning to the gifts of the Spirit at work? In 72 men. What is the connection there? Well, you know that time, the whole world was under the power of Satan. Hebrews 2.14 tells us the children are under the dominion of, of the fear of death. All their lifetime, they're subject to bondage. Amen? And the weapons of our warfare up to that point had been largely natural have been largely principles and boundaries and laws. There hadn't been much power. But when he said, I give you power over all the works of the evil one 
and they begin to move in that power, suddenly there is a precedent in the world that the dominion and reign of evil can come down. That the weapons of our warfare may not be carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So Jesus was seeing a snapshot of what God wanted to do through his church in this group of 72 who were willing to move in the spirit. Pretty powerful, isn't it? And it's to that church, it's to that new covenant people that the promise comes, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue raised up in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of Yahweh. And their vindication or their righteousness will be from me. Let's dwell on that for a minute. Do you have the patience to, to dwell on that? Why is righteousness important for a believer's life? Will the unrighteous inherit the kingdom of God? 1 Corinthians 6 and 9. As John says, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And he who does not is of the devil. Pretty simple. What is righteousness? Somebody give me a definition of righteousness. Right relationship with God. Right relationship with God. Can we accept that definition? Right standing with God. I can accept that definition. Can you? Yes. Amen. So why is righteousness important? Why does the New Testament repeatedly tell us that we cannot enter the kingdom of God without it? Is God going to let sin into heaven? He's too, look, he's too pure to look upon evil, but he'll look the other way when you get there. Hmm? God is holy and heaven is holy. And it's got to exclude sin. And we know that the justice of God set in motion before the fall of man set in place certain compensations for sin. And God cannot take back what was in motion, what He had already spoken. He's not going to deny His Word Himself. So human beings need to be righteous. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, be holy. As the writer of Hebrews poignantly states, without holiness or sanctification, no man will see the Lord. So how do we get that righteousness? Is there more than one way that we receive that righteousness? Because if we discover how that righteousness, that necessary righteousness becomes ours, what we're talking about is justification. How do we get that righteousness? You have to get inside of the only one who was righteous. Don't simplify it and skip all I want to teach tonight. <laughs> First it comes through imputation, but then it's also to be imparted to us. So he's giving two ways that righteousness comes into human experience, into human lives. 
First, by imputation, and second, by impartation. The problem is, is that some want to focus just on imputation, and some want to focus just on impartation, but God needs us to recognize the place of both in the economy of our salvation. Okay? So let's, let's bear this out a little bit. Let's say that the way we get righteousness is by receiving the self-same spirit that filled Jesus. Is that a legitimate claim that that's how we receive righteousness? If Christ is in you, Romans 8, 14, though the body is dead because of the curse of sin, yet the spirit is alive for righteousness. righteousness. Why is the spirit in our lives? It's for righteousness. Amen. To make us like the Lord. How about this? Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst for. For I'm going to help them be better people. Is that what he says? No, he says they shall be. Huh? Filled. And in filling is necessary for righteousness. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And what is the infilling? Go and tarry in Jerusalem until you be filled or endued with power to do what you can't do in your flesh. In that same passage in Matthew, he says, most assuredly, or without a doubt, unless your righteousness is a brand much easier than that which the Pharisees walk in. No, most assuredly, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no wise enter the kingdom of God. So from Jesus to Paul to John, we're told over and over and over that we can't get in without being righteous. And then we're shown that righteousness is put inside of human beings through the power of the Holy Spirit. So then I want to ask you, this is jumping to the second part of Daniel's ways of receiving righteousness. I want to ask you, are any of us sufficiently obedient to the working of the Holy Spirit to be able to say that we are perfect before God and ready to see the Lord? Hmm? No. So he said that there's another way that we receive righteousness. And what is that other way? Imputation. Imputation. Or credit. Alright? God credits to us what we have not yet received as a possession, as an inheritance. He credits to our account what ultimately will become ours as we continue. But that credit is so important that there's not a man alive or who's ever been born besides Jesus who can die without that credit. The most anointed, the most spirit-filled person in the universe still needs that credit. And who extends that credit to us? 
The only one who can extend that credit to us is someone who has this righteousness. Who has an unlimited supply of this righteousness. Who can do that for us? And on what basis does he extend that credit to us? Does he extend it to all people right now? Do we believe in universal salvation? 1 John 2 and 5. Don't shake your heads too fast. He says, he himself, Jesus himself, is the propitiation, meaning the satisfactory payment or sacrifice of our sins or for our sins. That means he balances justice. The scales of justice, all right? All the sins of the world are like this, and they're going to hell. But the sacrifice of Jesus pushes down the other side so that his costly payment is sufficient to cover all the sins of the world. He himself is the savior of the whole world, and especially those of us who are in the church, who, are, who have re re received his, his call. Amen? So if John says he himself is the propitiation of our sins and not of ours only, but the sins of the whole world. So shut down the church, go live like the, the devil, be a hedonist all you want because he's paid the satisfactory sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. There's no imbalance of justice in the world anymore. Is that right? It's not right. So he's not the propitiation of the sins of the whole world. What he's saying is his sacrifice is sufficient to pay for the sins of the whole world. But the only people whose sins get paid for are those who respond to the grace of God that appears to them. Titus 2 and 11 tells us that the grace of God has appeared to a few men. And blessed are they because the rest can't be saved, right? Just like John, he's teaching this limited atonement stuff. He says, the grace of God that brings salvation, salvation has appeared to a special elect. No, it's appeared to all men. Teaching us to say no. So it appears to all, but it teaches us. Because we let it teach us. Can we come to repentance apart from the grace of God? No. Can we receive the Holy Spirit apart from the grace of God? Is there anything we can do apart from God's activity preceding it and prompting it? Who is it that works in us to will and do His good pleasure? God. Who is it that grants the Gentiles repentance unto life? Acts eleven seventeen. Who comes to the Father? Or to the Son, rather. Those whom the Father draws. No one comes to the Father except through the Son, and no one comes to the Son except the Father draw Him. And is that draw, is that invitation of the Father resistible? Is the Father's draw and attraction and grace resistible? Yes. Yes, it is. We're told in Romans 8 that God subjected the creation to futility, that's you and us, in hope. 
There's a certain view of sovereignty that says God gets whatever he wants. That there's nothing impossible for God. Is that what the Bible teaches us? That there's nothing impossible for God? The answer is no. The Bible teaches that there are things that are impossible for God. There are two things that God cannot do. What are they? He cannot lie, lie and he cannot deny. And what is himself in his essence? Love. Love. So he cannot deny his core self, which is love. And love is so powerful that it does not require or rely upon coercion to affect its goals. So we have a God subjecting the creation to futility in hope. Is hope a meaningful attribute for a God who always gets exactly what he wants with every individual? If you hope for something, that means there's a possibility you won't get it. Am I right? If you know you can get it, it's no longer a hope, it's a certainty. But who hopes for what he sees? We hope for what we do not see, Paul said. But God subjected the creation to futility in hope. Hope. God had hopes. And does the Bible teach us in Genesis 6 that those hopes were disappointed? Does the Bible teach us that God Almighty is capable of regret? Of regretting and being sorry for the hopes he placed in man. What does it say in Genesis 6? And God looked on the earth and he saw that it was full of violence. And all the intentions of men's hearts were entirely toward evil. And he was, he was sorry. He was regretful is the word. He was regretful that he made man. And he determined to blot them out. So there is a view of sovereignty that says God is not capable of regret for whatever he wants to happen is always going to happen in even an immediate and personal sense every time. But there is another view of sovereignty that says, yes, he's all powerful, but his essence is love. And so in an ultimate sense, Zechariah says, in that day, the Lord will be king over all the earth and his name will be the only name. In an ultimate sense, God's power of love is going to be triumphant. Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin and the worst criminals are going to get down on their knees and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because Paul tells us every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Amen. To the glory of God the Father. So everyone's going to give him glory in an ultimate sense. But in a time bound immediate sense, we are in this place where we have choices. Not because we're more powerful than God, but because as an expression of His power, He made us like Him. He made us in the image of God. 
He did not make us like animals, and He did not make us like machines. He made us like Him. And nothing is more indicative of God in, in, in Genesis than His creative qualities, His power to choose. So He made us with the ability to say yes or to say no, to love, to sin, to righteousness. What did Paul say? To will is present with me. God put a will in silence. To will is present with me. He put that choice. And in an ultimate sense, he sees the end from the beginning. And he knows that one day love is going to be triumphant. But in an immediate sense, you can disappoint God. You can fail God. Or you can even surprise God. We are told that Jesus was astonished at the Syrophoenician woman's faith. We're told he was astonished at the faith of the centurion. He tells the, the Syrophoenician woman, he says, I'm not going to heal you because I wasn't sent to anyone except the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But when she is willing to move out of her position of separation from God and move into the position of faith, suddenly she gets the miracle that she was not originally eligible for. Was, did the family of Ruth, the grandmother of King David, did her family and background predispose or predestine her for the grace that she received in the covenant of Israel? No, indeed. They were forbidden to make a covenant with the Moabites. They were forbidden to let them in. She was, she was a great-granddaughter of Lot and his wicked alliance with his daughters. Amen. As Brother Dan has spoken. But something happened to her. She got out of the camp that was sliding toward destruction. And through faith, she moved into the camp that was connected to and destined for God's goodness and grace. So the word of the Lord can come and say, get up, Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell them that in three days I am going to destroy that whole city. Was that a lie? Was God lying? I am Yahweh and I change not, but you are people and you can change at the word of the Lord. So he says, go tell Nineveh, I'm going to destroy them in 40 days. Who did the changing? I am Yahweh and I change not. Did God say, you know what? I just feel bad. I spoke impulsively. I'm not going to destroy them. Who did the changing in this equation? Nineveh. Nineveh, by their response to the word, which is faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. By their response to the word, they moved from the category destined for trouble and destruction. And they moved over to this category of grace and salvation. So just like the Syrophoenician woman, she's in the camp of the pagans. She's not eligible for the promise of the Israel of God. But she moves over there through her faith. And he says, I have not found so much great faith in all of Israel. In the same way, these people, they make this journey. They get over to this camp of those who are eligible to receive the promise of God. Not by their works, but by their humbling. We receive grace when we humble ourselves. 
So Jonah blames God. He accuses God of something. And is his accusation true? You are always relenting, he says. He's mad. I wanted to see the fireworks I missed at Sodom and Gomorrah. And here I sat on the side of my hill and I had a branch over me. And I was just waiting and here comes mercy. Oh, ho, hum. This guy was something else, I tell you. You are always relenting. Does that indicate a schizophrenic double-mindedness on the part of God? No, it indicates that he sends his sure judgment, but with it is the possibility that we can change. He doesn't change, but we can change. So that what he intended does not happen. It's not that he's done the transformation, it's that we have done the transformation. One translation quotes Paul, we were children of wrath destined for wrath, but God. It's what Solomon prayed when he dedicated the temple. When they sinned and the skies hold back their rain and the crops do not yield, when they turn and fix their eyes toward this temple and pray then here in heaven and forgive. The idea that God has some list in heaven of the people He wants to destroy is absolutely antithetical to everything the Bible teaches us about God, His character, and specifically His mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. Here is Jesus. The law came through Moses, but Jesus was full of grace and truth. Notice again that grace is a substance that fills someone, not just a legal exemption from obligation. You can't be full of a ticket from the cops. You can't be full of a license from the state. So grace isn't a license. Grace is a substance. It's what the book of Hebrews calls the spirit of grace. Amen? That's why he says, Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst, for they shall be filled. So this idea that God's sovereignty is qualified or modified by His nature, which is love. What about Matthew 19? Jesus looks over the city and does what? Reminiscent of Genesis 6, He expresses the most profound regret. Does He not? He weeps. He weeps. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often I would have. Does your view of sovereignty allow God to make that statement? How often I would have. I would have. You were slated for blessing. You're not the city of Tyre. You're not Sodom and Gomorrah. You're not even Samaria. You were in line for a blessing. But as surely as the man in line for trouble can move and position himself for grace, the city in line for grace can resist and position themselves for desolation. Do you understand? So he weeps and he says, I would have. I would have. Gather your children together as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But 
I would have, God says, but you were not willing. Were not willing. You were not willing. Nothing can more clearly show us that salvation is always a response to what some call the prevenient grace of God. But that grace is resistible. That grace is resistible. Else why would the writer of Hebrews say that we should not do despite to the spirit of grace? If there's no possibility for us to do such. Why would Paul tell the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4.19. No, do not quench the spirit. And do not despite the spirit by which you are sanctified. So God's grace is at the core of every good possibility available to us. But we can resist that grace. It is resistible grace. And that's the scariness. That's the danger in it. Jesus. Thank you. Stephen also says how often he spoke to the people he was. How long will you resist the Holy yes. Spirit? You're just like your father. You're stiff at. You always resist Amen. the Holy Spirit. He's referring to Stephen the martyr when he ministered to the, the Jews, his people. He said, you always go astray in your hearts. You do always resist the Holy Spirit. Yes, please. <clears throat> when John the Baptist called the repentance, people do. But the Pharisees and experts of the Lord rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Amen. They made a choice. Amen. And some will say that they only did that because God didn't make grace available to them. And so their choice was really God's choice. Because they believe it diminishes the sovereignty of God for him to want someone to be saved and for them not to be saved. But let them believe whatever they want. We're going to believe what the scripture says. And that version and interpretation undermines unequivocal truths in the scripture. 2 Peter 3.9 says what? God is not willing that any should perish. That any should perish. But he is long-suffering towards you. Wanting all to come to repentance. And we could go on and on and on and on. But you get the point. And so how we appropriate this righteousness of Christ is first and foremost through faith. And yet some will say we appropriate it through faith and we accept him as our substitutionary atonement. Right? And that's certainly true, but it misses the point on some level. In what, what is the configuration that God invites us to, whereby His sacrifice gets applied to our lives, to our sins? What is that configuration? When Jesus described salvation in the most general terms, how did He define it? Know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Amen. A relationship with God. And is that not what Jeremiah 31, 31 also says? In that day, says the Lord, I will make a new covenant, not like the one I made of old, but I'm going to put my spirit in them and cause them to walk in my statutes. No more will each man teach his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. 
So this relationship with God is the salvation, is the configuration by which his goodness is credited to us. And what more specifically, how, how, what other, what, what's the type of relationship that the, the church is invited to with Christ? A bride. A bride with a husband, right? The church is the bride of Christ. Christ is the husband. Amen. And the two shall become what? One. 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 Now what happens when a husband marries a wife? Well, a lot happens. But one of the things that happens is their liabilities and assets become mutually shared. All right. So if I marry my wife and I find out she's got $6,000 of debt, I don't any longer say, how are you doing with that debt of yours? It becomes our debt. So in the same way, through covenant relationship with the, the bridegroom and the bride, if we want God's, if we want God to take possession, if we want Christ to take possession of our liabilities, our debts, it is going to be through a covenant relationship with Him. Where we lose our individual identity as an entity separate from Him, and we become one with Him. Thank you, Jesus. So Paul would say, for me to live is Paul 2.0. Is that what he said? No. For me to live is what? He said, my life is hid with Christ in God. What does he mean his life is hid? He means that he has lost his identity as a separate entity. And now the two are really one. That they may be one as we are one. I and them, them and us, etc., etc. So oneness with God. At one meant corresponds to atonement. In the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies. It was in the sanctuary. And in the sanctuary, it was behind the veil in the Holy of Holies. And there, over the Ark of the Covenant, was the wings of God's protecting angel cherubim. Amen? And that space between the wingtips of the cherubim were called, was called the what? Mercy. The mercy seat, or in Hebrew, the kippuret, as in Yom Kippur. That was the place where glory from heaven and the sinfulness of earth intersected. That was the touching point where God connected with mankind. That was it. They needed to turn toward it. They needed to come toward it. They needed to make their sacrifices at it. But what was the ultimate temple and the ultimate connection between earth, between man and God? It was when God put his spirit in a man. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it back. John 2.19. And they did not understand that he was speaking to them about his body. Because God does not dwell in temples made with men's hands. Was Jesus made with men's hands? No, God always wanted to live and walk among them. I will live in them, the Lord says, and I will walk among them. Amen. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
Thank you, Jesus. So it started with Jesus. And he was the temple. And he was the sanctuary. And he was the holy of holies. And his flesh was the veil that was rent. He was the priest offering this, the lamb. He was the lamb being offered. He was the altar upon which the lamb was offered. And he was the God to whom the lamb was offered. And his flesh was the veil that separated man from the presence of God. But when he rent not his, not his uh, garments, but he rent his own heart and his own flesh for us, then this access to the holy presence of God was granted to us. And we call it the new and living way. Inaugurated by the blood of Jesus. Amen. But if we are going to marry Jesus, if we're going to become one with Jesus, it necessarily requires that a divorce happen before that new marriage can happen. Does the Bible teach us that we should take up our cross and follow him? Does he teach us that we should offer our bodies as living sacrifices? Does that sacrifice save us? Does that sacrifice atone for us? No, not at all. So why are we asked to make a sacrifice that does not atone for us? How many sacrifices are there that have atoned for us? One. We are blemished lambs. We are contaminated offerings. We cannot atone for ourselves. That's what the Mormons believe. Bless their blinded hearts. We don't believe that. The Bible teaches us that there's only one. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So why are we asked to make a sacrifice that does not atone for us? Because that sacrifice we're asked to make puts to death the old husband that prevents our marriage to Christ from being legitimate. Do you follow me? We cannot be joined to another until the former has died. Is that what Romans 7 teaches us? So God says, I want your obedience. I want your, your best. And we said, but Lord, all we have to offer is a blind lamb and a lame calf. Imperfect obedience. And he says, bring it to me anyway. Because where the heart is willing, the gift is acceptable. Bring it to me anyway. Keep trying to learn what pleases the Lord. Amen. Day by day being renewed. That's what he wants. So if that sacrifice that we make is an expression of faith, then the faith makes us eligible for the sacrifice that saves us. And if that sacrifice that we make is the putting to death of the old man, then his death makes the marriage to Christ legitimate. What does he say in Romans 6? We are united with him through. And whose death is he talking about here? Ours. In verse 7 of Romans 6, 7 he says, Therefore he who has died is freed or justified. Freed from what? Free from this body of sin. Free from this mastery that would take the place of Christ's Lordship. So he says, sin shall no longer be master over you. 
in verses 16 through 19, also Romans 6, that you should obey its lust. Does that mean we'll never make a mistake? Wives make mistakes. People in a marriage blow it. They say things they regret. They do things they regret. But the covenant can remain so long as you don't go back to your old master. So we're not talking about perfection. We are atoned for by the sacrifice of Jesus. But we are saved. That which is credited begins the process of being imparted as soon as the credit starts. So some will say, well, faith is just mental assent. It's just assenting to the facts about Jesus. But that's not what the Bible teaches us faith is. The Bible teaches us that faith is obedience. How many of you know what Romans 1 and 5 says? Us grace and apostleship for the obedience of faith. God has given us grace and apostleship, Paul said, to bring about the obedience of faith. Amen. Does the Bible link believing and obeying? Does it make a separation between them that you can believe but you don't have to obey? Or does it link them? 2 Thessalonians 1.7 The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4 says the same things. Romans 2 says the same thing. Those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, will receive wrath and indignation. Okay, but that, now let's look at this. Hebrews 3.18. To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But those who were disobedient. So we see that they were not, entered, they were not able to enter because of unbelief. unbelief. So disobedience and unbelief are one and the same thing. The Bible speaks against works. It never speaks against obedience. We're going to talk about what kind of works it speaks against. Romans 10, 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed, believed our report? Romans 16, 25. Paul speaks of leading to the obedience of faith. So faith and obedience are not opposites. One comes from the other. When you hear the word of God, something rises in your heart. And you say, I believe that. But if you don't put that belief into action, that is not a living faith. That is a dead faith. Isn't that what James teaches us? Faith without works is, and can a dead faith save you? It's a false faith. Like Paul spoke of in Romans, I mean, in 1 Corinthians 15, 2, he said, I may know to you the gospel by which you are saved, in which you now stand, unless you believe in vain. And the word is useless there. Only mentioned one other time in the Bible. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned about things not seen, moved with godly fear. By faith, he moved. What does the Bible teach us about sin? Lust. When it is conceived, brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Well, the same is true in the Spirit. Amen? Faith, when it is conceived, brings forth obedience. 
And obedience, when it is finished, brings forth life. Amen? But the person who says, I have faith, but he doesn't put his faith into action, is just kidding himself. It's not activated faith until he gets up and does what God is telling him to do. So it says, by faith, Noah moved. He moved. Faith is not static. It is not something that you entertain while sitting down. It is something that gets you on your feet and puts you to work for 120 years. If you really believe it, you're going to act on it. This is true in all of life. Even secular people would tell you that this is true. You really believe something, you're going to act on it. But if you don't act on it, it proves you didn't really believe it. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned about things not seen, moved with godly fear. Prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of what? The righteousness that is according to the law? Paul uses, or the writer of Hebrews uses, the exact same phrase that Paul uses in Romans 4 when he says, we are not seeking the righteousness that comes by the law to be justified by our own works, but we are seeking the righteousness that is according to faith. That is the exact same phrase that is used here. Noah was heir of the righteousness that is according to faith. He was before the law. So whatever that version of righteousness is, that's the kind we're supposed to be emulating. Meaning that New Testament faith does not preclude obedience. Does not even preclude the absolute necessity for obedience. Hebrews 11.8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out. If Abraham had sat there and just said, oh, Heavenly Father, I have so much faith. I just want to bask in this faith. <clears throat> would he have had faith? If he had stayed in order, would he have had faith? And if a Christian just sits there in his sin, in Egypt, figuratively speaking, and says, Heavenly Father, I just accept you as my personal Savior. And the Lord's like, come on out of order now. No, Heavenly Father, that would be adding to what you've done. I just want to bask in my faith here. It is the silliest, most delusional exercise in self-deception that you can possibly entertain. Jesus had a crowd gathered in the house, and it was so crowded in the house that somebody who wanted to be healed had to be brought up to the roof. And they took the tiles away and began to lower the man down before Jesus. And what does the Bible say? And when Jesus saw their faith, faith is something visible. Amen. Seeing their faith. It's not the only time either. If the man, Brother Daniel reminded us, if the man who was born blind in John 9 met the Lord on the road and he said, uh, Pray for him, put mud on his eyes, and he said, I want you to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Let's imagine he's going to wash in the pool of Siloam. And while he's going, a free grace Christian comes along and says, Where are you going, buddy? Well, I'm going to wash in the pool of Siloam. Why? Well, because Jesus says, I'll be healed of my blindness. Now, now, you're trying to add to the work of Christ 
You can't do that, my friend. It is complete in Christ. I mean, what are you trying to do? Show that your works are necessary? I don't know what you're talking about, but I still got mud on my eyes. <laughs> I mean, it's bizarre. We're told that his faith, he was healed by his faith. And we're told that the woman with the alabaster jar, her faith, she, her sins were forgiven because of her faith. And we're told that the man lower down, who Jesus saw their faith, what did he do? Did he, did he heal him or did he forgive his sins? He forgave his sins. And they got mad. And he said, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. Let's heal him also. But the greater miracle was to forgive his sins. So that had to be the right kind of faith. So once that faith is activated in our lives, it is not a complacent faith that allows us to sit still. But it is an active faith. With Peter, we can say our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. With Jesus, we can say we walk in the light lest the darkness overtake us. Believe in the light while you have the light. Walk in the light while you have the light. This is a journey. Amen. Romans 4, it says they are the sons of Abraham who walk in the step of Abraham. Is that what it says? Who walk in the step of Abraham. That one little... It's like Abraham went out of Ur and then went right back that night. Where'd you go, honey? I went on a little faith journey. It was incredible. <laughs> really? How about that? What did God speak to you? Well, He said He was going to do all these incredible things and make us a multitude. Well, I guess He's not true. It never happened. No, I mean, it's bizarre. It says they are the sons of Abraham who walk in the steps of Abraham. Romans 4 and Galatians 3, 4 and 5. They come down pretty strong against a certain kind of works. And what was the kind of works that they were coming down hard against? Was it obedience to the truth? Was it a walk in the Spirit? Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus was clearly portrayed and crucified. Amen. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? The God who works miracles upon you and provides you with the Holy Spirit. Does He do it by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? Galatians 5 ends by telling us we are not under the law. If we walk according to the Spirit, we are not under the law. Paul was not setting up a dichotomy between a walk of obedience in the Spirit and this kind of grace that exempts you from any relationship of obedience. He was identifying circumcision. In Romans 4 and Galatians 3, 4 and 5, over and over and over, he was coming down hard against circumcision. Why? Because it was weak through the flesh. Go to Romans, uh, Romans 8, that they might fulfill the righteous, the righteous requirement of the law might fill them. So he was, he was coming down against circumcision. So when he talks about works, 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 he's talking about that which can be done by the flesh. He's not talking about a walk of obedience in the Spirit. And is it possible for the Spirit to perform works through us that the flesh can get no credit from? Is it? Did you hear me three weeks ago when I talked about this? Give me some examples. Is it possible for human beings to participate in works for which the flesh can get no credit? Give me an example. 
Somebody, not you, Dan. Somebody. Let, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. Amen. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and applaud you. No. Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Because the righteousness God is looking for is the kind that comes from those who have been filled. Not with themselves, but with the Holy Spirit. Any other scriptures you can think of? I worked harder than all of you. That is not I, but the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 15.10 I worked hard. By the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. For I worked harder than all of you. But it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Showing that the grace of God does the working. I wrote a little track a couple years ago called Grace Works. <laughs> and if it doesn't, it ain't grace. <laughs> the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared teaching. That word is paideo. Discipling, training, disciplining us to say no to ungodliness. How about Romans, how about uh, Matthew 10, 20 or Mark 13? When you are brought before various rulers, etc., etc., do not worry about what you're going to say or how you're going to say it for what? It will be given you by my Father, by the Spirit. I will give you what you will say. And what does he then say? And it will not be you speaking. This establishes the precedent that there are activities empowered by the Spirit for which flesh can take no credit. These cannot fall under the categories of Paul's injunction against works. But only the dead disobedience of a circumcision that relies on fleshly works that is what he is excoriating. Amen? So we can see works. You can have works without faith. But can you have faith without works? You can have works without faith. You can have circumcision without faith. But can you have faith without works? No, you cannot. Amen. So we can see works without faith. Lord, all night we have been fishing these waters. Yet at your here comes faith. It's not that God doesn't want the works done. It's that He doesn't want them done by the power of the flesh. That's a filthy rags righteousness. Amen. Read this. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Oh, good. We don't have to obey. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not in Christ only. Of course it was fulfilled in Him. That's why we must have the, His righteousness credited even while He begins the process of imparting it. So the Bible speaks of our need to have a relationship with God. Whereby the husband takes on the liabilities of the wife. So it speaks of salvation spatially, doesn't it? It says, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who accept Jesus as their personal Savior. No. Pretty much. No. Who have said the sinner's prayer at least once in their life, even if they forgot it. Pretty much. What does it say? There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ, to those who are in, in Christ Jesus. Comma, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Amen. So we have to have a real relationship with God. And when we start our journey, we don't have the relationship that we're reaching for. And so whatever is lacking is credited. But if we stop our journey, 
then whatever was credited ceases to be credited. Is that what the Bible teaches us? Hmm? What does he talk to? What does he say about those who draw back? His soul have no pleasure in that. If any man draws back, Hebrews tells us, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition or damnation, but those who press on to the saving of the soul. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. So it's a it's a process. And you say, are you good enough to make it to heaven without the imputed righteousness of Christ? No, no, and never. But if I stop, then the darkness is going to overtake me. So I'm asked to examine myself, 2 Corinthians 13, to see if I'm still in the faith, to test myself and make sure I don't fail that test. I'm asked to evaluate whether Christ is in me for righteousness. Not just this substitutionary atonement, but this relational atonement. Little children, 1 John 3, 7, little children, Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sins of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. To see Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So that is what God is calling us to, is a relationship. A covenant relationship with him, whereby his spirit can empower the righteousness that flesh can never produce. But in that process, we need the credit, we need the imputation that comes upon legitimate faith. But what is legitimate faith? It is a walk in the light. It is the many steps of Abraham. How does righteousness come to us? Two ways, what are they? First, imputation. And what? How does imputation begin? Through legitimate faith. But what is legitimate faith? By faith, we move with godly fear. By faith, we obey and go out to a place. By the obedience of faith. Faith is not faith if it remains just a thought. But faith, when it is conceived, brings forth obedience. And obedience, when it is finished, brings forth the righteousness. Amen? So he says in Romans 6, how does he say it now? Whoever, whomever you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one's slave whom you obey, whether of leading to death or obedience leading to. So there is the, the immediate credit of the thief on the cross. He hasn't been filled with the Spirit. He hasn't been baptized in the name. He hasn't really done anything. But in that moment, his whole heart is to do all God's will. And God, in His phenomenal mercy and grace, can credit whatever is lacking. But if we say in our hearts, okay, the thief got saved, so I'm not going to do anything more than the thief did. I'm going to be a thief, and on my deathbed, I'm going to confess it. That's not acceptable. We must walk while we have the light, or else the darkness will surely overtake us. Our father Abraham, was he justified before circumcision or after circumcision? Before circumcision. But had he said to the Lord, I don't think I will. And the Lord said, I want you to be circumcised. And if you're not, you're put out from my covenant. Amen. Would he have continued to be saved? No, he would not. So it is a walk. It is a path. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining brighter and brighter to the full light of day. Proverbs 4, 16 or 18. I can't remember which. Amen. It's a journey. 
It's a process. Thank you, Jesus. It's a relationship. Amen. And the Lord knows if we are obeying the truth or obeying unrighteousness. He doesn't ask us to be perfect, but He asks our commitment and our effort at faith to be perfect. Our will to be perfect. To will is present with me. Amen. And He says, okay, well, if that's there, then I'm going to give you the empowerment to perform is now going to be there also. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. What does he say? But if you put to death the deed, no, if by the Spirit. Because anyone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness needs an infilling, don't they? But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live.